tonight, I hope to conclude my thoughts from the minor prophet Zechariah. And I want to present to you tonight what I'm calling the fifth gospel. That's what we're going to look at for the remaining part of Zechariah. And I'm calling this message the graphic gospel of Zechariah. And I think you'll see why as we highlight and look at the messianic references. Kids, if that's a big word for you, it just means references to Jesus before he came. That's just what that means, messianic references. How Zechariah talked about Jesus who was yet to come at that point. So the graphic gospel of Zechariah is what we're going to look at. And turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. You say, well, I thought we were in Zechariah. We are. But I'm going to do this a little bit different so you can see just how much of the gospel truth is in the book of Zechariah. And if you want to follow along in the book of Zechariah as we go, you can. Or if you want to go with me in, from, in the book of, primarily in the book of Matthew, you'll see where this is coming from. Okay? Now, as you're turning there, whichever one you want to go to, Zechariah or Matthew, I want to remind you of the different ways that we have seen Jesus in the minor prophets. In Hosea, he was the husband, the faithful husband. You remember? In Joel, he was the baptizer with the Holy Ghost. In Amos, he was a burden, the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he was our Savior. In Jonah, I just refer to that as he was the sign of Jonah. In Micah, he was the messenger with the beautiful feet. In Nahum, he was our avenger. In Habakkuk, he was the evangelist pleading for revival. In Zephaniah, he was the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, he was the restorer of the lost heritage. And now we come to the messianic gospel of Zechariah. Let's read in Matthew 21. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And if you want the reference in the book of Zechariah, it's from Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Okay, so here we go. Matthew 21 and 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them. And bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and this is Zechariah 9 and 9, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And he brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon. So get the very graphic picture. My message is entitled The Graphic Gospel of Zechariah. It's a very graphic picture that you can sink your teeth into and see Jesus sitting on this colt. This was a foal of a donkey or an ass as it's referred to in the Bible. And this, this was a wild bunch of animals, let me tell you. No man had ever ridden on this colt before. You could not naturally just go up and sit down on a colt like this. He would kick you, buck you off, and hurt you. But this is the Son of God. 
And he just sits calmly while this little colt, the foal of this donkey, just sits there and, and does exactly what he wants because he is God, you see? And this is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now I want you to think about this gospel of Zechariah that we're looking at here tonight because in my estimation, it covers about no more than a 60-day period. From this point right here in Matthew 21, all the way down to Acts, the first chapter, where you'll see Jesus make his ascension back to heaven. And I, I emphasize when I read that to you about the Mount of Olives, because if you'll, if you'll on your own time go back and study through some of this that I'm preaching to you, you'll find just how often the Mount of Olives, the, the Olivet Mountain, the Mount of Olives was a hillside that was next to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that had olive trees growing on it. And it's a place that Jesus often resorted to. And especially the night before He's crucified, it's where they come and take Him from. And you had to cross a little brook to go up into what they called David's stronghold or the, the city of David was the, the central part of Jerusalem where David's palace was and where the temple was. And you had to cross this brook Kidron or Cedron, the brook Cedron or Kidron, however you want to pronounce it, it divided this little valley between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. And that's where they came and took Jesus and they carried him across the brook Kidron to take him to be mocked and tried. Okay, little side note about the brook Kidron. It isn't one of the songs that we sing, our daysmen, but in the brook Kidron or Cedron, it was a stream that didn't flow year round. When it rained a lot, it would flow. But most importantly, there was a drain from the temple sacrifice area where when they sacrificed the lambs, the goats, the heifers and such, the blood from those sacrifices would drain down the gutter and drain out into the brook Kidron, Cedron. And that's the brook that Jesus crossed whenever he, as the sacrificial lamb, was being led to the slaughter, you see? So this gospel of Zacharias is very interesting and it's very focused. From the time that Jesus went in the triumphal entry riding on the colt, this little donkey that had never been ridden before, from the time that he rode into the tri triumphal entry as a king into the city, into his city, all the way over a 45 to 60 day period, 60 days at the most, where we have Jesus resurrected, standing on the Mount of Olives, the same place where they came to take him, and he ascends back into heaven. That's what the Gospel of Zechariah covers. And it's graphic. It gives you beautiful pictures and images of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives you details. Now listen, here I go again. Chronicles of Narnia. Y'all are so tired of hearing about that. I'm going to get you so tired of hearing about that that you'll go read it. What's all this fuss? In the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair, it's when a little girl named Jill Pole and another little boy named Eustace Scrub are sent back into Narnia by Aslan. And when Jill first encounters Aslan, in this particular book, Aslan gives her four signs to look for. And he makes her repeat those signs. I want you to look for these things. Because when these things happen, I need you to do something. 
Every time you see the sign, go and do this. Did you see the next one? Go and do this. And of course, much like any of us would, she misses all of them but one. <laughs> you know, he gives her these little prophecies. Watch for how this will play out. And every time the prophecy plays out, it's not like she expected. I tell you, C.S. Lewis was just a master of, of suspense and such whenever it came to his writing. And that's some of the, some of the very best in that book. And she finally got the last one, but she missed all the other signs. She had to look back and say, oh, that's, that's what he meant. <laughs> so when you see these prophecies from Zechariah, they had no idea what they meant, you see? It was just, it was just a mystery. And, and some of it often jumps out on the page. What is he talking about? Is he changing the subject? What's the context? I mean, it, you would think maybe the prophet had lost his mind when he would say some of these things. Like, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh. Normally, you would say, riding in a chariot behind two great steeds that are pulling the, the chariot down through on a victory parade in the middle of the city. But no, the prophet says, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon a colt, a little donkey foal. That's not the way a king is supposed to enter triumphant, right? Doesn't make any sense when it comes to nature. And yet here is the fulfillment of that. Here is that prophecy fulfilled. You say, how do we know that? Because he said so. He said, this is the fulfillment. This Nobody could have ever predicted how that would play out. And here it is before our very eyes. And the graphic details that Zacharias foretold 500, 550 years before, here it is playing out before our eyes. And watch this. They, he set upon it in verse 8, a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. By the way, this was also a fulfillment of Psalm 118. And the multitudes that went before him, can you get that in your picture, the graphic picture of that? Multitudes cutting down. They're just going to the side of the street, cutting down palm branches and laying them down in front as this little donkey carrying the Son of God, the King of Kings, making his entry into Jerusalem. A triumphal entry like no one else could ever have imagined or predicted. And no doubt no king in the history of the world ever has done it this way or ever will do it this way, except for the King of Kings. He is not a tame lion. Can we agree? <laughs> and a very great multitude spread their garments. They took their coats off and they began to lay them down in front of the king because they knew that this was the king. And they cut down branches and of the trees and strawed them or threw them in the way, and in the road that he was proceeding up step by step into the capital city. His city. And the multitudes that went before and followed cried, a lot of these were children, by the way. <laughs> you know, great heads of state and kings who have won great victories or are about to go out to battle, they don't have little children praising them. They have, they have men with deep bass voices praising them and, and shouting, you know, these marching orders and such. And here are these children that are crying out. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I could just hear that beautiful chant as a, as a hymn, as a song as they went along. And when he was coming to the Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? I tell you, it is the king is who it was. And he was fulfilling what was foretold in the graphic gospel of Zechariah. 
As a matter of fact, over in, I believe it is the book of John's account, the gospel of John's account of this, it says that they cried out and said, Hosanna to the son of David, the king of Israel. They were chanting and referring to him as the king, not just the son of David. Uh, From a political standpoint, that would raise some eyebrows, would it not? Because they're under Roman rule. So the first graphic picture that's given from Zechariah is found here in Matthew 21. And so begins the gospel of Zechariah as he begins to tell us things. Now, this first event in the gospel of Zechariah is a few days before Calvary. Weeks, days maybe. It can't be very long. You can probably add up and see it's, it's maybe at the most a week or a week and a half. And then the last thing you'll see from the book of Zechariah is going to be 40 days after the resurrection, you see, where he ascends back to heaven. But most of Zechariah is concentrated into one little 24-hour period, concentrated during the night, the things that transpired regarding his crucifixion. So the next one we look to Matthew 26 in the Gospel of Zechariah. Matthew 26, look at verse 14. And if you want to follow along where this is in Zechariah, it's in Zechariah 11 and verse 12. Let's read in Matthew 26 and 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. Now some of you may have in your Bible a star right there, and it tells you that's a direct reference to Zechariah. Okay? So what's going on here? The book of Zechariah says this, And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you go read the book of Zechariah in regard to this, it kind of jumps out at you because he is talking about shepherds. And he's talking about this person is a shepherd that's talking right here. And he's he's condemning in some parts of Zechariah how pitiful the shepherds of Israel were. And specifically, he's talking about their leaders and, and the ones that were to care for them. So then it is, at, it is as if the shepherd steps back and says, okay, what will you pay me for all of this that I've done for you? It's, it's literally almost facetious, if you know what that means. It's like he's, in a way, kind of making fun, but it's a very serious matter. So in all the, the condemning that he's doing of these shepherds are terrible. I've been a good shepherd. Think about John, the, the Gospel of John, where he speaks and he says, I am the good shepherd. So the good shepherd here steps back and says, what will you pay me for all that I've done for you? Now, this is not Jesus saying, I deserve to be paid. No, it's almost the irony of what's going on. I, I've been here for you. I've done all this for you. And, and think about what Jesus had been here. He'd been there in his public ministry for three and a half years. And think of all that he did. And, and it's like he's stepping back and saying, what's this worth to you? <laughs> and it was worth 30 pieces of silver. That's all it was worth to the trader. And in a sense, it wasn't worth much more to the apostles. <laughs> you see, because they forsook him too. They weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. You know, in John, the 13th chapter, as they were sitting at the table and Judas was there, 
Jesus looked at Judas and he says, after the sop, Satan entered into him. That's where they were sopping their bread in the dish, the, the olive oil dish. Jesus said unto, unto Judas, that thou doest, do quickly. So don't think for one second that Jesus didn't know what was coming. He knew what Judas was about to do. And in today's money, 30 pieces of silver would probably be about $100. $100. Are you telling me that that is all that they weighed for the price of Jesus Christ? $100. Now, if you want it to be even worse than that, see it in a little, in a little worse light, if you look back in the days of Joseph, who was a type of Christ, you remember Joseph went out to see his brothers and what did they do when they sold him? They sold him into slavery. You see, this was the price of a slave. And they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. They sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And in the law, if you read in the book of Exodus, you'll find that 30 shekels was the price of a slave. 30 shekels. So our Savior had the price of a slave put on him. <laughs> That's something, isn't it? They weighed for his price. And it was 30 pieces of silver. Now, look over to Matthew 27 and verse 3. If you're looking at Zechariah, don't, don't move from where you are. Because the very next verse in Zechariah applies to this. Matthew 27, and we'll start reading in verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor, then Judas, which had betrayed him, for how much? 30 pieces of silver. When he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Now don't think that this meant he was a child of God and felt spiritual repentance. This meant he felt sorry for himself. He repented of what he had done because he had betrayed an innocent, the most innocent man that's ever been. And he brought again the 30 pieces of silver, same 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, well, what is that to us? See thou to that. We don't care. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. You see, listen, some people will say, why was Judas among the apostles? You know, didn't the Lord know that he was a traitor and all of that? Of course he did. The prophecy in the Old Testament said that, that there was to be a traitor among the apostles. Okay, it doesn't mean that when Jesus chose him to be an apostle that he chose him as a child of God. These are my thoughts about why one of the reasons why Judas was among the apostles. Because Jesus treated Judas with the same general kindness that he treated all the other apostles. Judas benefited from Jesus' Jesus's kindness in that he had a place to sleep, he had money to spend, he had food to eat. Jesus did nothing wrong to Judas, you see? And this is just proof positive that man at his best in his nature will only betray the Son of God. That's the whole point of it, I believe. That this natural man who was treated with, with kindness by the Lord still betrayed him. As a matter of fact, if you read back just a little bit, you'll find what set Judas off. Some of you that have read that before, remember Jesus was sitting at the table and they were eating. And Mary comes with that very valuable ointment. That No telling how much money that ointment cost. It was perfume. 
And it was in an alabaster box. And there's no telling that where she had gotten that from or how much she had paid for it. It was probably over a year's worth of wages that cost Mary to buy that spikenard. And then she broke the seal on it. And she put it upon Jesus at the meal that was going on there at Mary and Martha's house. And it says that Judas was offended because of that. He said, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor. And it says specifically, it's not because he was a good man. It's not because he cared anything about the poor, but it's because he was a thief and he had the bag. He was the treasurer. How in the world did the thief wind up as the treasurer? Because that's man in his nature. You see? And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Judas I just can't take this anymore. She just wasted probably... A thousand dollars of that money in that day and time, a year's worth of salary by pouring that on his head and on his feet. I just can't take it anymore. So what does he do? He goes out and he bargains with, and the priest got a bargain, didn't they? They got they paid the price of a slave, thirty pieces of silver. Judas didn't get much of a bargain, and he wanted a refund. And Judas goes and he realizes it and he casts it down in the temple. Can y'all get the very graphic image of that? I think I shared this with you before, but back when I was in college, on a Sunday afternoon, I was playing a little music out on a patio down in Five Points. Beautiful Sunday afternoon. And I had a good friend who was a street player down there. You know, he played on the street and had his guitar case open. And his name was Jimmy. And Jimmy, I guess he was through playing that day, and I was out there, you know, entertaining and playing out there on the patio, sitting on a stool and singing songs of people walking by. So Jimmy comes walking up. He says, hey, Tim. And he's got a, a, a hat full of change that he's made that day. And he took that change, and he just went, Whoosh! just threw it at me. And it was, I mean, it was made a horrible noise. I mean, it sounded like something crashing and it just went all around me. You know, I was like, Jimmy, have you lost your mind? That's your money, man. I, even as dumb as I was then, and I'm probably not much smarter now, but I thought of Judas casting down the money in the temple that he betrayed Jesus with. And I wish I could say, well, you know, I walked away from that. But no, I gathered up all the quarters. I was about to let all those quarters go to waste. You know, I needed them for... Washing my clothes and putting them in that change thing, you know, at school. You know, I had a lot of clothes to wash. But I thought about that. I've seen that. I've seen where somebody cast the change and it just makes all this noise. That's what Judas did. He took the 30 pieces of silver. They wouldn't take it back and he just cast it at them. You see, it gets even worse for the price of our Lord, doesn't it? It's not just that they bargained for 30 pieces of silver, but he sought a refund for the bargain he made and then he just threw it away. But... The priests gathered up that money and they knew it was blood money. They knew it was innocent blood money. The most innocent blood money that ever could have been. And look at verse 6. The chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for her to put them into the treasury. Boy, they were good men, weren't they? <laughs> they were really straight-laced, good, legalist Pharisees, weren't they? We can't put this money in the treasury because it's blood money. It's blood money that we paid, no less. Because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Now don't let that throw you off because Jeremiah spoke it, but Zechariah wrote it down. 
Okay? Jeremiah spoke it, but Zechariah wrote it down. So it's written in Zechariah that they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Now let me read to you what it says in the book of Zechariah. Listen to this. And the Lord said unto me, Cast the 30 pieces of silver unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. You don't think there's humor in the Bible. It's some very sad humor, but he says, it's a goodly price that I was priced at. He's making a joke of what they have priced him at. They priced me at 30 pieces of silver. Boy, what a goodly price. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So what in the world does the potter's field have to do with it? Okay, I don't know for sure. And nobody knows for sure. But I think this is a pretty good guess at what the deal is with the potter's field. If the, if the field belonged to a potter, you know what a potter does, right? He needs clay. So most likely the potter had been digging the clay out of the field to make pottery. Make sense? So this is a worthless field. Are y'all with me? That's why it only costs 30 pieces of silver. It's a worthless field. You think about, you go look for some land. And if you found a piece of property that had holes dug in it, and it was all jagged and messy looking, and you know people had been digging all over it, you wouldn't want to buy that. If you did, you wouldn't pay much for it. Some of you might think, well, I'm going to get a bargain out of that. They got a bargain out of the potter's field. And guess what? The potter's field probably already had holes in it. So it wasn't hard to dig graves for people. And they didn't just put any kind of people in these graves. They put strangers, people that were homeless, people that had been left orphaned, people that they had no idea who they were and their relatives wouldn't come and claim them. They just buried them in the potter's field. And I've thought about that potter's field a lot through the years. That potter's field had nameless, faceless people buried in there. And to this day, their remains, whatever may be left of their remains, are still in that potter's field, unmarked. But the Lord knows them, every one. And the Lord is going to call all of His children, all of, all of mankind out of the graves, including the potter's field. This was probably a field that a potter had dug up and it was worthless. We're going to back up in Matthew 26. The next one in the Gospel of Zechariah is Matthew 26 and verse 31. Look at verse 30. Because the Mount of Olives pops back up again. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. That's after the Lord's Supper. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, where? In the book of Zechariah. I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, he, Peter was offended by Zechariah's gospel. Because Jesus just said, everybody's going to flee. You'll all be scattered when the shepherd is, is, they smite the shepherd. And Peter said, though all men shall be offended. But even though these other guys may flee from you. Yeah, you, you know, John, I can see how John would flee. I can see how, you know, James and these other guys. But not me, Lord. Though all men shall be offended because of thee. You know, when you start thinking that you're the man, that's when you're about ready to fall and hit the ground. I'm strong enough to resist this temptation. It's not, I'm not going to get... That's when you're about ready to fall. When you think you're the man or you think you're the woman or you think you're the guy or you think you're the girl. Well, this, it's all about me. That's about when you're ready to fall. And Peter thinks it's him. No, everybody else is going to forsake you, but I'll be right beside you, Lord. 
And Peter denies him worse than anybody. He says, yet I will never be offended. And Jesus looks at him and gives him a very special message. And he says, verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. I mean, that was a very pointed message. And Peter still didn't get it. Peter said, though I should die with you, yet will I not deny thee. And then the other disciples chimed in and said, yeah, yeah, we won't either. We won't deny you. So turn over to the next page. In verse 56, I want to get the last half of that verse 56. This is when they come and they take Jesus and they arrest him with no cause. In verse 56, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. That's a fulfillment, a graphic picture, a graphic image of the fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Zechariah. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So now remember this. At the beginning, I read to you of how Jesus, the Messiah, is depicted in the different minor prophets. Remember? You know, he's the husband in Hosea, other things I've already named. I can't find any other minor prophet that has more details, graphic details about the Messiah. It's like the closer you get to when Christ is coming. It's still 500 years out, but the closer it gets, it's almost like the Lord is getting excited. And just saying, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you something. It's just going to be amazing. I'm going to give you some more information. The Lord is, it's like he's licking his chops and he's getting ready to send his son. Still 500 years away, but he's giving them all these details. He's giving them specific details about things that are happening within a very short period of time, within a day, within a 24 hour period of time on these few uh, predictions, uh, these three few prophecies right here. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Look at the next one. We've only got a, a couple more here to look at. Matthew 27. And look at verse 48. All contain, these contain within this short period of time. Look at verse 48. Let's read. Straightway, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. He's hanging on the cross. And then the rest said, let be. Let us see. And that's what I want you to get right there. They said, let us see whether Elias or Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, that, by the way, that's John 19 where he says it is finished and then he gave up the ghost. It says, behold, the veil of the temple. Notice the word behold, to see. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent and twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks did rent and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city, appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus, you see, it says, let us see him. Let us watch him. Let us see what happens. In the book of Zechariah, Chapter 12, verse 10, it says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Y'all get that? They would look upon the pierced Son of God. That is literally be, being fulfilled right there. Okay? You say, well, are you sure, Brother Tim? Because it didn't specifically say that. In John, the 19th chapter, it specifically says that and tells you that it's a fulfillment of the book of Zechariah. The Gospel of Zechariah. John, John 19 and 30, it says Jesus, when he had received the vinegar, said it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up the ghost. You go on down and you read in verse 32. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. 
And forthwith came there out blood and water. He pierced his side to make sure that he was dead. He, he cut into the side of the Son of God and he didn't move so he knew that he was dead. And he that saw it bear record and his record is true and he knoweth that he saith true yet that ye might believe for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled a bone of him shall not be broken and again another scripture saith they shall look on him whom they have pierced. You get that? The graphic depiction of the soldier piercing Jesus and them looking upon him. They watched him to see if he would call down Elijah to save him. They watched him to see if he would bring himself down if he really was the Son of God as he said he was. They, the Roman centurion watched him and knew without a doubt that this was the Son of God when he saw what happened. You see the perspective of the Roman centurion compared to this perspective of the Pharisees? They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Very graphic. Very sad. But it gets better. <laughs> the next one, I'll go ahead and read it from the book of Zechariah. It's from Zechariah 13 and 6. It talks about the wounds of the shepherd. The shepherd king. Remember the king comes triumphant, riding a colt, the foal of a donkey. He makes his triumphal entry into the city. And then he talks about the shepherd they smite the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. This is the shepherd king. And in Zechariah 13 and 6, it says, One shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my enemies? No, in the house of my friends. So now you got a picture of the Son of God resurrected. And there's many places that we could go to see this in the New Testament Gospels. You can even go in the Psalms. In Psalm 41 and 9, he says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Jesus said to Judas when he came to him in the Garden of Gethsemane there, near the Mount of, on the Mount of Olives, he said, Friend, wherefore hast thou come? See, it was an acquaintance of Jesus that betrayed him. The wounds are in his hands because his friends betrayed him. You see? But I think the best picture of this is in John 20. In 25, this is the account of Thomas. You remember Thomas? The other disciples therefore said unto Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's a great attitude, isn't it? He said, I've got to see it to believe it. Well, by the way, faith does not work that way. Faith, you don't see what you're walking towards. You walk in faith trusting that what you're doing is honoring God and going in the direction that God says. After eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas. He turns to Thomas because he heard what Thomas said. Can't you just see him? He turns to him and he holds out his hands. And he says, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. What are these wounds in my hands? It is the wounds where I was wounded in the house of my friends. Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. That's a wonderful thing. You see how it runs the whole gamut, if you will, the whole spectrum there from the beginning of that day until even after the resurrection. When Thomas beheld the wounds in the hands of God. The last one is 
Very simple. Just a couple pages over from John. Acts the first chapter and verse 9. This is the final chapter, if you will, in the gospel, the graphic gospel of Zechariah. This is the ascension of the Lord. Acts 1 and 9. When he had spoken these things, Jesus, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. This is his return to heaven. You know, he made a triumphal entry on the donkey into Jerusalem. Now, this is the triumphal entry into heaven, and he goes up into the sky. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them, two angels in white apparel, which said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called, you guessed it, Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So you see... In Zechariah, it says in chapter 14, verse 4, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. A lot of people today in the religious world that don't understand the kingdom of God is here and now. That the Lord's already established his kingdom. The visible part of that kingdom is the church of God. Many, many people don't understand that. And they're scared to death about what the return of the Lord looks like. There's many end timers and much eschatology, false teaching that says Jesus is going to come back and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives again. This is Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives. It's kind of like Jill missing those signs in the silver chair. This is Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives in, in a literal fulfillment of what it says in Zechariah. He shall stand upon the, in that day upon the Mount of Olives. He's not coming back to this earth. He's through with this earth in terms of what he has done and accomplished here on this earth. And he is very accomplished. Let me, let me add that. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the, king, the shepherd king. He's completely brought in the flock in terms of saving them. And he doesn't have a need to come back to this earth anymore. And furthermore, 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, tells us that, that he's going to meet us in the air. He doesn't touch down on this earth. The Mount of Olives was fulfilled whenever Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and he ascended back into heaven. And that's the gospel of Zechariah. That's the gospel of Zechariah. In a 60-day time frame, from a few days before the crucifixion to 40 days after the resurrection, you have these very physical prophecies that are given. The king's triumphal entry the shepherd king being betrayed, the price that they laid for him, which was the price of blood, the smiting of the shepherd where the sheep were scattered. They looked upon the pierced king and he showed them the wounds in his hands. So there's no doubt it was him. And then in the last prophecy of Zechariah, of the gospel of Zechariah, the shepherd king stands. See, he rode in to Jerusalem, but at the end he stands. There's no other king on the face of the earth that can go through what Jesus went through and stand when it's all over. He was dead, you see. The shepherd king stands. Now, today, the shepherd king reigns and rules. And I like to think of him as the shepherd king, don't you? Because if you think of him just as king... It can kind of be a little austere and a little rigid. You know, king, I can't really get to him. But when you think of him as the shepherd king, he is the king of the sheep. It gives you a little different image, doesn't it? 
And that's what's all through the Gospel of Zechariah. It's the shepherd king, and he reigns and he rules, and he has not lost one of the sheep, you see? And he's coming back to get us all one day. We don't have to wait for these prophecies to be fulfilled. They've already been fulfilled. And you can see as clear, and you can see it clear and plain in the Word of God how those prophecies were fulfilled, and they never saw it coming. <laughs> that's why he takes such care to say, This is the fulfillment of Zechariah because if he didn't say that, we would miss it. You see, we'd look right over and think, well, what did that mean? What's that 30 pieces of silver mean? But he tells you it was the price that they weighed for our Savior. See, aren't you glad that God has given us this information? I rejoice in the gospel of Zechariah, the graphic gospel of Zechariah.